0: Philippians 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others.
1: We're going through the great book of Philippians in this teaching series that we've been calling For Our Joy. For our joy when the big idea is that when God saves us and he renews us and brings us into his family, Jesus becomes our highest treasure. And we start to find in him a deep and lasting joy that really nothing else on earth could bring. And so this morning we're going to talk about what it means to have joy in our unity. Joy in our unity, the unity that we, we have uh, with the church throughout history, which is one of, the, one of the reasons that I love that we sing old hymns here at King's Cross, just like we, we, we did this morning, uh, to, to kind of remind us of, of the truths that have been uh, held to by Christians since the beginning, truths that have been sung for uh, oftentimes centuries, and, and and just this this unity that we have with the church historically, but especially the kind of unity, the beautiful unity that we have in the local church. And so I want us to see this morning, we're going to walk through three points, how the unity that Paul talks about is critical in his mind. And then he unpack, unpacks how that, that unity uh, that he calls them into is it should be courageous, and how that unity is compassionate. So first, we're going to look at a unity that is critical. Second, how unity that is courageous. And lastly, that a unity that is compassionate. Let's look at that first one. He calls them to unity that he says is critical. Now read verse 27 with me. Paul's writing to the church in, in Philippi, and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want you to notice how important this, this idea of unity and togetherness is to Paul. With the words that he used. You got to remember the, the historical background of this church, right? Remember the historical background. Paul, the guy writing this letter, he's the one who planted this church. He was there when it started. He planted this church and here he is now writing this letter 10 to 11 years later and he's chained in a jail cell writing to them mainly to encourage them as sort of like their father in the faith. This church holds a special place in his heart. The church of Philippi holds a special place in Paul's heart. And we, we find out quickly that, that they had a lot of things going for them. We can see it in, throughout chapter 1 and just the love that he has for them. Paul starts gushing about them in chapter 1, thanking them for their love and for their support and for their partnership in the gospel. And mostly all of chapter 1, I mean, we, most of what we've seen from him writing, like the whole first chapter, is Paul just gushing about them and, and letting them know how he's doing. He's talking about his situation. He lets them know that he's in prison. But he says, hey, don't worry about me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And then here here in verse 27, at the end of chapter 1, this is actually the first place that he sort of shifts his attention, his focus from from. Himself and his situation, letting them know how he's doing. And in verse 27, it's the first time he sort of shifts his focus now to them. Now he has a word for them. So what is his first word for them? Verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that word only that we see there really packs a punch in the original Greek language. It's the word manon manon which can be translated as as as, as saying, hey, just, just one thing. If you have the Christian Standard Bible, you know, that like your your translation will actually say that. Where where Paul says, Hey, just just one thing. Like like he's saying, hey, don't miss this point, this critical point. One scholar points out that it's as if Paul is lifting up a finger as if to say, don't miss this one thing. So now what, what is that one thing that he, he doesn't want them to, to, to miss? It's like that meme, right? Like you had one job. What is, what is that one thing that, that he considers their job? That one thing he doesn't want them to miss. He says, read it with me, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the message of Christ. And so the idea here is that followers of Jesus make a statement of the gospel, not only with their lips, but with their lives. Don't miss that. Followers of Jesus, we make a statement about the gospel, not just with our lips, but with our lives, the way we live our lives. Now, what does he mean by, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel? What does he mean by that phrase, let your manner of life? Now, now this is another Greek word, uh polytyuste. Polytuiste, which is a verb form of the noun polis, which uh, means city. And we hear this all the time, like Indianapolis is city of Indiana. Metropolis means mother city. Cinepolis means city of cinema, like like the movie theater. So when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, using that Greek word polytheiste, what he's saying is live as citizens of God's kingdom through the gospel. Don't miss that, all right? When he says live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's saying live as citizens of God's kingdom through the gospel. Now, this language that he used, this citizenship language, would mean something really special to the church at Philippi. And the reason is because Philippi was famous for, it was known for being a colony of Rome. (laughs) It was a Roman colony, and so it was like like a little Rome. Right? It's like how, like when when my, my wife and I like to take a trip trip down to, to San Diego, every time we're down in, in, in San Diego, we love going to this little restaurant called Davanti uh, Inoteca. Davanti Inoteca. And it's on this little street then in San Diego that they call Little Italy. Right? And the reason they call it Little Italy is because it's full of Italian shops and restaurants and cafes. And the idea is that this street is kind of like... <coughs> A small taste, a microcosm of what a street in Italy would look like. And so the Philippians, they kind of understood this concept because their very city, Philippi, was like a little Rome. It was a small taste of what Rome is like. That's what they were known for. And so for Paul to use that verb, polytuous say, let your life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's his way of saying, I want you to live as the citizens of heaven that you are. I want you to live as the citizens of God's kingdom that you are through the gospel. In other words, make it practical for us. Local churches are like little tastes of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we should be like. Local churches should be like little tastes of the kingdom of heaven. So our our love, our lives, our humility, the way that we treat one another, our community values should all put on display God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven where we're citizens. Paul is reminding us, he's saying, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been changed. Right, your old life is put away. You're you're different now. You're changed through the gospel. You're no longer a citizen of this world. You're also a citizen of heaven. That's where you're headed, and so live like that. Live like that, like you've experienced the grace of King Jesus, like you belong to him and his place, his kingdom. And Paul doesn't just stop there. He actually illustrates for them what this will look like. In verse 27, he says, So that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And What this tells us is that in Paul's mind, if you're following his logic, his sort of, his sort of train of thought, In in Paul's mind, a church that is living in a manner worthy of the gospel is a church that is together. A church that is unified, standing and striving together with with one heart and with one mind. This is his critical point. This is his just one more thing, or just one thing. This is his, his, his don't miss this point live as citizens of Christ's kingdom by standing firm in one spirit so now now that he's expressed how critical this unity is and he now transitions into what that unity looks like in the trenches of life first he talks about what that unity looks like when we're facing opposition and that's our second one here our second point a unity that is courageous courageous in opposition read verse 28 with me he says, and and in this unity, don't don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is Paul saying? Paul is calling the church to be courageous, even in the face of opposition, in the face of these opponents. Now, we don't know who exactly the opponents are that he's talking about. But one thing we do know is that faithful Christians throughout history have always found opposition against the world. Jesus himself said this. He warned us of this in John 15. This is the words of Jesus. John 15 verse 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world now, God, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Now, to be clear... Paul's not saying we should go looking for opposition, all right? Like, some people, some people in the church, like, we go looking for opposition. Like, people are kind of like jerks about their, their faith, and then when they get criticized, they're like, yep, Jesus said this will happen, <laughs> Paul warned us of this. I'm being persecuted for my faith. Like, no, you're just rubbing people the wrong way with your buffoonery. Don't go looking for opposition, but the idea that Jesus says in John 15, and what Paul is getting at in this text, is that when you proclaim a message, uh, a, a message from Christ that sort of turns the world upside down, people won't like that. When you proclaim and display a message that Jesus lived, died, and rose to save us from our sins, to save us from ourselves, you will find opposition because most people uh, think that they don't need any saving at all. They don't want to think that they need saving at all. And so Paul says, look, you're going to have opponents in the world, but don't be frightened. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be frightened and don't let them intimidate you. Instead, stand firm in one spirit and mind. He says, contend for the truth together and that will serve when you're your togetherness in the truth, your togetherness in God's grace, that will serve as a sign, as a display to the world. Verse 28, he says, a sign that that displays uh, their destruction, your opponent's destruction, but also a display of your salvation of God. In other words, let's talk about both of those. First, the salvation from God. He's saying when a community of disciples are striving together for the faith of the gospel, that is a sign, Paul says, to ourselves and to other believers that we've really been saved by grace. There's something about our togetherness in the face of opposition that, 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 that says that we are together as a family of God. In this, in the same way that 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 family should sit together even through hard times, like our spiritual family, family of Jesus, all the more should sit together in the hard times. But then, he says it also confronts those who are not believers. Our unity in the face of opposition, actually confronts our opponents. He says it's a sign of them, of their destruction. And what he's, what he's saying is that there's just something to be said about a community of people who are unified in mind and spirit that, that just a, a lone ranger Christian can't do. Like, the unbeliever looks at a single follower of Jesus living differently than they are, and they, and they think, man, that, that guy's a freak. That girl's a Jesus freak. But when a number of believers that they know start to display a spiritual unity and gracious attitude, even the face of opposition, Paul says that starts to work and turn into a sign to those people that, that God truly saves, that he's really up to something in history, He's saying the beauty of our unity, when we're truly unified together, the beauty of our unity confronts those who don't yet believe in a good way. And, and and like I I've seen this happen like so many times. I had this this friend who was not a Christian when I first met him, and back in the day we'd get together and he'd ask these honest questions about God in the Bible, and then just, just uh, end up in this place where he'd be like, "No, nah, it's not for me," and just 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 kind of laugh at my beliefs. But then then he started meeting some of my other friends. Met my family came over to my home and when we'd have people from church over, and then there was just just something to our unity in the spirit that kind of put a rock in his shoe and made him wonder, hey, maybe there's something to this. Just there's just, just something about their I mean they, they look different, they sound different. But there, there's just something radical that unites. There's just something about the, the, their, what they believe and, and their character that just like unites them. And he started saying, God, you know, maybe there's something to this. He started asking more questions and then we ended up baptizing him like two years later. You see, Paul says, live with a type of courage and fearlessness in your unity with one another, even in the face of criticism and opposition. And that will be a sign to the world that God saves, that he's up to something, that this is worth getting in on. But then he kind of turns the corner here and says, you need to have courageous unity, not just in opposition, but but but, but also in not just an outward opposition, but also in the inward opposition, in, in your suffering. Read verse 29 and 30 with me. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that that I still have. Now you might be surprised to hear this, but but suffering, suffering can be a gift and a privilege. Truly, it can be a gift, suffering. Jesus himself is the suffering servant we, we see in Isaiah 53. There's, there's a special sort of camaraderie then that we have with Jesus when we suffer for his sake. Now, it's not that we should embrace suffering in some like weird sadistic sort of way or that we should pretend that evil and injustice is, is good. But we should embrace what suffering does in us. We should embrace what suffering can do through us because of Jesus. The way it draws us closer to Jesus. The way that it draws us closer to one another in unity. And and through that, through suffering, we have this unique opportunity to display the hope of Jesus together in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering. So Paul's saying, look, look, this unity that we should have this standing firm in mind and in spirit, it is critical. Don't miss this one thing. And this unity, it has implications to, to the way you deal with opposition, both, both from people on the outside and spiritually on the inside when you're suffering. But then he says in point three, I want this unity to also be compassionate. Compassionate with the way that you also treat each other. With the way that you also treat each other in a local church. Read chapter two with me. Paul transitions here into chapter two and and he says in verse one here, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same minds, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do do, do you hear the echo from, from just a few verses earlier? Do you hear this urgency, his angst for the church to be unified? Verse 3 says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but 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 also to the interests of others. You see Paul still has unity on his mind for this church but now his focus shifts from the the external uh, uh, marks of of, 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 of unity and, and and how how it's assigned to the outside world and he and he shifts to the internal marks of unity what that what unity looks like in the church he transitions from how the unity impacts our outward witness to how unity impacts our relationships with each other Now, when Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy by being unified in your mind and affections, that is his way of saying, look, I already have so much joy, right? He's saying, like, look, I already have so much joy, but now complete my joy. Make my joy overflow, we keep saying how this theme of joy is just littered throughout the letter, right? That's why we're calling this series For Our Joy. We saw in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from when we first started this thing until now. And then in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he talked about how, look, he said, look, anytime that Christ is preached, I don't care what those people's motives are. Anytime that Christ is preached, I, I, regardless of the circumstances, I rejoice. And he says, yes, I will rejoice. And then Paul here in chapter 2, he's saying, complete my joy. In other words, I'm already full to the brim with joy, but now I'm asking you to to fill me with joy till I'm overflowing. Let's get this joy spilled up on the floor. Someone's going to have to mop this up, right? Just complete my joy. How? How? How should, how do you complete my joy, Paul says in verse 2? By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. We see echoes here from the chapter earlier, right? And then he gives some examples of what that looks like. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You want to know how to complete my joy, be of, and and have a unity of the same mind and love and accord? Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, those first few words, do nothing from, is like Paul saying, look, no matter what you do, no matter where you go no matter what's on your agenda agenda, whatever comes after whatever I'm about to say next is unbecoming of a Christian and you should have no business doing have nothing to do with so what does he say we have nothing to do with what does he say we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit have nothing to do with these things now Let's talk about each of those. Selfish ambition is like what we saw in Paul's competitors in chapter 1, right? There's this group of preachers that were kind of stoked that Paul was in prison. Because to them, they're like, you know, we're preachers. Paul's a preacher. He's obviously the most popular one around. But now he's in chains. He's in prison. He's out of the picture. And instead of seeing that as a moment for these other preachers to care for him, they saw it as their moment to shine. And that's what selfish ambition is, right? It's, it's, it's rivalry. It's, it's, and, and it's a rivalry and competition for resources, for power, for a title or a position. You know those people that just like, they just have to be in front of everyone, right? They love to be up like behind a podium with the lights on them. Like, thank God I'm not one of those guys, Right? <laughs> But, but, but truthfully, truthfully, like many of us, many of us to, to varying degrees, we're, we're kind of driven by that. We're, many of us to varying degrees are driven by a sort of selfish ambition, a desire to get ahead, even if it means at the expense of others. It's as if we haven't already received infinite riches in Jesus, who's our greatest treasure. It's as if we haven't already received the greatest inheritance through him, a renewed relationship with God Almighty. Paul says run from that sort of selfish ambition. Have nothing to to do with that. Do nothing from selfish ambition. He also says have nothing to do with conceit. Better translated, a vain conceit. Some translations say, have nothing to do with vain glory. In other words, like don't, don't have this, this vain glory, that, that, that really, this, 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 this uh, conceit in, your, in a glory that you have, that really doesn't exist. It's a glory that doesn't exist. The whole of a Christian's life is grace, isn't it? All that we know is grace. And so there's nothing that you have that you didn't first receive as a gift. Nothing that we have that we didn't first received as a gift. Our whole lives as believers is grace upon grace upon grace upon amazing grace. And our Lord Jesus is literally the opposite of this. He's literally the opposite of selfish ambition and vain conceit, vain glory. You see, he didn't have vain glory or empty glory. He had glory in the fullest sense of that word. He was God Almighty, the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the one who sat at the right hand of the Father in the throne of heaven. He had all glory. Yet he made himself nothing, emptied himself of that glory for our sake. We as followers of Jesus, we walk in the way of Jesus who gave up glory rather than the white ways of the world which which hogs glory. Do you find yourself kind of kind of puffing yourself up around others? Kind of flexing before others to make yourself look more put together than maybe you really are. I mean I do this all the time. We do this all the time. Like when someone asks you how you're doing, what do you say? I'm good. And or I'm busy. Right? In other words, I'm important. I've, I've got my stuff together. No one answers that question honestly. How are you doing? How is your week? Have you been since the last time I saw you? No one really answers that honestly. No, 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 no hardly anyone actually divulges the hard stuff of life. A friend of mine texted me uh, the the other day, kind of kind of asking how how we were doing, and, and I was you know studying for this text, and so I was like, man, I I should probably be honest. Uh, and I was like, you know, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm tired. Things are hard. I'm tired. I'm 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 broke. This is this is kind of a difficult week, and uh, and and he res- re- the first thing in his response he's like, hey, thanks for being honest. Like he was taken aback by that, right? Hey, thanks thanks for being honest uh, about it. It's almost like he wasn't he wasn't expecting that. Paul says, if you want true unity, true kind of camaraderie in the gospel, like real authentic unity have nothing to do with selfish ambition or vainglory, vain conceit. Paul says, run from these. Run from these. Run from selfish ambition and rivalry. Run from vain conceit. They are a cancer that breaks down the organic unity that should exist in the body of Christ. So I have nothing to do with them. Instead, here's here's what you should put on. So Paul says, look, put off those things. Put off selfish ambition and and conceit. Now put on, he says now uh, in in verse 3, but in humility, instead of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is saying is, look, selfish and proud people care only about themselves. Humble people, they think about everyone else. Not looking to your own interests, but the interests, interests of others, to be clear, that, that, that does not mean that you're a pushover, all right? It also doesn't mean that you passively ignore the things that you know are wrong, right? You let people do injustice against you or against others. What it does mean is that you lovingly and that you sacrificially and that you assertively, maybe even aggressively, put others before yourself. It's about having a Christ-like compassion. Christ was not a pushover. He confronted and stood up against wrongs and injustices. But man, he he was the biggest servant of all. Serving to the point of emptying his glory and laying his life down. For years... I kind of thought like humility was like having a low view of myself, right? <clears throat> a low view of myself. I like, kind of like, I mean, I, I suck. I'm the worst. Like, like, like in an ER or your ER sort of Winnie the Pooh voice or like sadness from inside out, right? Like I suck. I'm the worst. But really, like that's actually another form of pride. And really, that's just a form of, that's a false Humility. Because Paul des- actually defines pride as being so fel- self-focused and humility as being others-focused. And so humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's really thinking about yourself less. All right? And so, so one, like, like, like pride is like a mirror. It's like a mirror that you're holding out where every, everywhere you go, you're looking at this mirror where, where, where everywhere you look, all you see is yourself right? You could be saying like, man, man, look. Yeah, and, and, and the pride has two different forms, right? You could be saying like, I, I look amazing, right? <laughs> look at this. Look at my good side right here. Wait, what? I have two good sides, <laughs> right? I'm amazing. Look, 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 look at me. Like the pride, often when we think of pride, we, we, that's what we think of. Or you could also be saying, man, I look awful, I hate what I see. I can't stop thinking about it. You see, in both of those areas, you're still looking in a mirror constantly. You're still focused on yourself. Humility is not, remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And humility is, is, is less like a, a mirror and it's more like a window where you're looking through it to constantly see the needs of others outside around you. Humility is not about being self-deprecating. It's about being others dignifying. That's what humility is. According to Paul, here, you know, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Humility isn't being self deprecating, it's being others dignifying. That is why Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And man, this is a rare virtue, right? This is hard. This is a rare virtue. virtue. Like John Calvin, the great reformer, he says this about these verses. He says, now if if anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. In other words, this is like the hardest thing of all the things we could attain to. He says, we should not be surprised that humility is so rare a virtue when every one of us in our hearts likes to think of ourselves as kings. It's all about us. So our big question for us then is man, if living in a manner worthy of the gospel as a church means to be unified, and to be unified means to think of others more significant than ourselves. And humility is really like just as, as, as hard as it sounds, as as hard as, as John Calvin you know just, just unpacked for us, then man, where do we start? Where do we start? <coughs> First couple points. We need to recognize that that we have an enemy that is hell-bent on destroying our unity. We have an enemy that is hell-bent on making sure that that we are pursuing selfish ambition and vainglory, vain conceit. We have an enemy who is hell-bent on disrupting our unity. See, the Philippian church, they had a lot of good things going for it. Right? But the one danger that Paul could discern in the spirit, the one danger that threatened them, was divisiveness, was disunity. Petty squabbles that were going on in the church, which we'll kind of read more about in chapter four. But that, 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 that disunity is in, is, in, is in some way, really the danger of any church. Church in Philippi was a healthy church. It was a healthy church. Paul was stoked on this church. They supported him. They loved him. They loved one another. But he says, just one thing. Just one thing. And then he challenges them to stay unified. There's nothing the spiritual forces of evil would want to thwart more than the unity of local churches that are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he does that, the enemy does that by making us selfish, by making us conceited. And to tell the truth, like I see this, this sort of bent in my own heart. And so what do we do? We pray against that and we fight for unity with one another and, and we resolve to have a posture of humility in, with, with Christ as our example. And with that, we also need to recognize that unity is not the aim. If we want true unity, then we need to recognize that unity is not the end goal. It's not the aim. The aim is the gospel of Jesus. Live in a manner worthy. Live as citizens of the kingdom that you belong to through the gospel Unity is not the end goal. It's not the aim. Unity is just a tool to get the gospel of Jesus on display. You see, if a church comes around a personality or or like a person or a program or a way of doing ministry, like you could have unity around those things. But it'll eventually sort of crumble and wither. But if a church comes together around the gospel, the timeless gospel, The historic gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Of his renewal of all things at the end of time. If our church comes together around the gospel, if that's the glue that holds us together, if that's the mission that propels us forward, then true and lasting Christian community is possible. And not only is it possible, but that unity will preach Preach grace to each other. Preach grace to the world through our unity. Our unity in the gospel makes a statement not just with our lips, but with our lives, like we said earlier. Go back and read chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 with me. Paul says, listen to these words. This is the foundation of our unity that he calls us to in verse 3 and 4. He says in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or or fellowship, koinonia in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I want you to notice from from those verses, particularly verse 1, that our unity is is dependent on, tethered to, and, and fueled by the Trinitarian God of the gospel. Verse 1, encouragement. If there's any encouragement from Christ in you, the Son. If there's any love or comfort uh, uh, from God, that we, we know from the scriptures that, that, that comfort, or like love is associated with God the Father. Fellowship of the Spirit. You see, the God of the gospel, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is a foundation of our unity. The type of unity that we have is possible because God is united in Himself. And that's cosmic unity. That is a cosmic unity. What transforms everything in who we are, and what we do as the church, what transforms everything is Jesus Christ and his gospel. The Bible says that Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. Until you understand that he, Jesus, gave himself up for you in the truest sense of that phrase, he gave himself up for you. Until you understand that, you will never be able to truly do that for someone else. Until you really believe the gospel, the reality that Jesus became nothing in order to give you everything, that he became sin, even though he knew no sin, until you really believe that gospel, you won't be able to be truly humble and think of others as more significant than yourself. But you know what happens when this gospel collides with a community of, of men and women like here at King's Cross Church? When this gospel becomes our our center, when this message becomes our foundation, when we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, when we have these things going on, when the gospel collides with a community of men and women like we have here at this church then our lives are transformed, empowered. How can we pursue the unity that Paul calls us to? How can we run from selfish ambition and and vain glory? It's the, it's the, the hardest thing to do, the most rare virtues. Only by the grace of God, the sheer grace of God. The gospel of grace transforms us. It empowers us to where people are loved and the gospel is put on display through our unity because of Christ and in Christ, for the glory of Christ. Look, unity and community in the church and unity in relationships are hard, right? It can be awkward at times. But man, it's worth it. It's worth it. And that's why it's Paul's one thing to not miss. Complete my joy, he says. Complete our joy so that it overflows. That is my prayer for King's Cross. That that kind of joy would be in this church, and that kind of unity would be on display for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Amen.